Bay Hills Community Church is pleased to have you join us as we begin a new series, Just Married. While this may sound very specific, you'll find in this series some foundational principles for healthy relationships in all areas of our lives. In today's lesson, Lead Pastor David Fossil helps us see some relational points in Genesis chapter 2 that impact our lives every day. Good morning, Bay Hills. Good to see you guys. Grab the study guide that's in your program. If you grab the Bible on the back table or in the chair in front of you, we're going to be on the second or third page in the Bible. Book of Genesis, chapter 2. We're starting a brand new series this morning called Just Married. Just Married. Just by, by, by curiosity, how many of you here, by show of hands, are married? Go ahead, put your hands up. Be proud. God bless you. I see those hands. How many of you, you're not married You're not married, but you would hope that maybe possibly someday in the future you're going to tie the knot. Go ahead and put your hands up. Put them up. Be proud. Okay, now hold them up real quick. Hold them up. Hold them up. Now scan the crowd. Look for options. Look for options real quick. I'm just trying to help you out. One over there is like, I'm available. I'm available. Here. No. You know, most of you have raised your hand during one of those two questions. You know, and if you were too cool to raise your hand, you at least know someone that's married. Uh, please don't check out on me in, the, in this next uh, three weeks. Um, what we're going to be looking at is foundational, important uh, principles for, for healthy relationships. We're going to apply that to marriage, but, but you're going to be, you're going to get something out of this no matter whether you're single or married or, or divorced, whatever it is, we're going to get some good information out of this. Now, let me give you the motivation why, um, I decided to have here the short series as we, as we kick off our fall season. Like, let me give you three scenarios. Scenario number one, I want you to imagine that today, uh, right after the service, a friend of yours comes up to you and gives you a tip on a hot stock. You got to invest in this stock. But on Tuesday morning, when you get your Wall Street Journal, you're reading through it, and you see that the company, the business that owns this stock, uh, the article says there's a 50% chance that this company, this corporation, within the next six months is going to go belly up. They're going to fold. Would you buy the stock? Probably not. Too big of a risk. Second scenario. Let, let's say that um, you hear on the news that there are several mountain lions loose in your neighborhood. And, uh, and, and the police are saying that are extremely dangerous. In fact, um, there's a 50% chance that any pedestrians in that neighborhood will at least be bitten or maybe mauled by the mountain lions. Question. The following morning, would you allow your children to walk to school? Some of you are like, well, depends on what kid. And I'm just thinking about that. <laughs> no, if they, unless they have body armor and a shotgun, you're going to either keep them home or you're going to drive them to school, but you wouldn't do that. Scenario number three. Scenario number three is this. Let's say you're looking for a brand new car. And uh, you're looking, you're looking, finally you go to this dealership and, and you do this test drive and I, you like it and it's got nice features and the price is right, but, but you're like, you know, it's still a lot of, a lot of money, so I'm going to sleep on it and, uh, you know, come back tomorrow morning and probably, we'll probably make the deal. And, but while you're home, you Google and, and you find a consumer report on this, this particular car and it says that it drives great, but for some reason, 50% of those cars, eventually, something happens to the gas tank and boom, the car explodes. Would you buy the car? Probably not. The problem is that it is so incredibly unfortunate that 50% of the marriages in the United States of America 
will eventually explode end in divorce and create pain between not only the husband and wife, but havoc to all the extended family. Every single one of us has either experienced that personally or has a close friend or relative that has experienced it. Could we just agree and have the courage to say we're doing something wrong? Because this book says that that God gave us marriage to enjoy and to be fulfilled with it. But something's wrong. If if 50% of our marriages, even within the church, are going down the tube, something's off. Something's off. And, And that's my motivation. My motivation is to encourage you, whether you're married now or you have been married or you're going to be married, to help you and to put you in a situation that you can follow God's principles and standards in a way that you receive blessing. Okay, so we're going to we're going to be looking here at, um, at at Genesis chapter two and Genesis chapter two is really the story of hope. It, no matter where your marriage is, there's hope. No matter if, you, if your marriage has taken a bad turn, uh, you could turn it around because of the direction of God and the power of the Holy Spirit in your life and in your marriage. You can turn it around. That's what Genesis 2 is about as we lay this foundation. Now, I don't have the first couple verses up there, so I really want to encourage you to follow along in the Bible. I'm going to start in Genesis 2, verse 15. This is right in the middle of God creating what we know as earth and the plant life and the animal life and so on and so forth. Verse 15, the Lord took the man, Adam, and he put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to take care of it. Just a little note, this is before sin enters the world. Don't for one moment think that uh, work is the result of, of sin in the world. No, work is actually a good thing. It's a productive thing. And if you get into the right position and job, it can bring a tremendous amount of fulfillment. Every single one of us will have some sort of job or work when we get to heaven because work is a good thing, okay? It continues on, verse 16. And the Lord God commanded... Uh, the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from, from this tree, the tree of knowledge and good and evil. For when you eat of it, you will certainly die. Now we're going to get to this, this crazy fruit tree that God doesn't want them to eat from. And what's the big deal about having a piece of fruit? And why does it, you know, mess up the whole thing? We're going to talk about that. Okay. So we're going to postpone that and come back to that in the next couple of weeks. The key verse that I'm going to put up for you on the screen that launches this whole idea of relationships is verse 18. And verse 18 says this. Let me read it. Let's put it on the screen. And the Lord God said, it is not good for man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Now, let me highlight and draw attention to a couple things going on here. You see it already on the screen. Up until this point, God, this is how God is operating as he's creating. He creates the, an, uh, the, animal, the animal kingdom and he sits back and he goes, now that's good. And, and then he, cre- he creates the plant life and he steps back and he looks at that and he says, that's good too. And then he creates the birds, and he sits back, and he looks, he goes, that is good. And just step after step, as he's creating, he's kind of stepping back, going, that that turned out pretty well. This is the first time in the Bible that he steps back, and he goes, yeah, that right there is not good. And he's, what is he, what's not good? What's not good is that man, Adam, is, is alone. He's alone. Now, this is a, a series on, on marriage, but my, my first instruction is, is I want to give a word of caution to those of you who are single among us. Um, you must not misread this verse. There are, this is one of the most misunderstood verses, and it's, it's singles that are misreading it. Or you're buying into what others are saying. You must not think as a single person for one moment that you are less than because you're single. You 
can't achieve fulfillment because you're single. You, you, you won't be able to arrive to where God wants you to be because you're single. You're, you can't be in the in crowd because you're single. You can't believe that. I, I don't care. I, I don't care what, what you assumed others are saying. I don't care what messages you've heard from church. I don't care if your mom and dad keep calling and asking, when are you going to get married? You know, we want grandkids. Don't believe them. That's not what this verse is immediately speaking about. And you can't buy into that. If, if singleness was the worst thing you could be, if, if, if being single you couldn't arrive to become the person God wants you to be, you know what would have happened? Jesus, as the ultimate example of what it means to live life to the fullest, Jesus would have got married. He would have given us an example of what it means to be married. But Jesus didn't get married. You know why? Because marriage is not the magic bullet that gives you fulfillment, satisfaction, and helps you become everything God wants you to be. It's not the magic bullet. And those of us who have been married, we will say the opposite. Sometimes it really gets us into a mess. So you, you cannot believe that. The Apostle Paul would not have said, you know, some of you shouldn't get married. The best thing for you is not to get married. So, so a word to you singles. Take a step back, okay? Hold your shoulders up, put your chin up, and know that you can become everything God wants you to be, whether you get married or you don't get married. Now, I know some of you do want to get married, and that's fine. But this idea that you're less than because you're single gets so many of our singles in trouble because they, you know, some become quote-unquote desperate and end up marrying someone they should never have married in the first place. So the first application here is not, you know what, God's standing back going, yeah, yeah, they're single, you know, they're, they're, this is a problem. That's not what he's saying here. The first application here is God saying, you know what, it, Adam doesn't have any kind of companionship. He doesn't have any kind of friendship. Companionship is friendship. is something we can all achieve, whether it's inside a marriage or out, whether we're married or not married. That's the first application that is happening here, right? And, and so far, he, he doesn't have that, right? He doesn't have that. So God says, you know what I need to do? I, I, need, to make a, I need to make a helper, super, helper suitable for him. Now, that's an unfortunate English word because of how the Hebrew word says it. It's unfortunate because on the one extreme, you have feminists that go, I don't, what, what, am I a helper to him? You know, and then you have guys that are like, yeah, I wear the pants in the home, you know? And both extremes mess this up. It's not implying either one of those. Let me give you the Hebrew definition of what that word helper means. Let's put it on the screen. Two things I want to draw your attention to. A helper... In the, in the Hebrew word there, is someone who comes to another's rescue. Now, the word was used in some examples, for example, someone is swimming, they're drowning, and the, quote, helper comes and saves them. Gives you a completely different picture of what's happening here, doesn't it? And some of us guys might say, yeah, that's exactly what she did for me. I was all messed up and, she, you know, she helped out. Now, this next definition I think is even more interesting. Someone who compliments and assists the other to reach complete fulfillment. Christian psychologists and theologians that look at this verse point to it as one of the core reasons why God creates man and woman with clear gender differences. Now, this is not me having stereotypical uh, you know, things about men and women. This, I, have you guys noticed men and women are different? We're different. I'm not talking about personality differences here. We're just different. There's gender differences. Have you noticed men and women communicate differently? Have you noticed this? 
the, I, I don't know if you've heard this before, the average man speaks 20,000 words a day. 20,000. The average woman speaks 30,000 words a day. That's why, ladies, sometimes when you're having conversations with us at the end of the day, and all we're doing is, uh-huh, yeah, sure, okay. It's because we only got like 200 words left in the day. We're at like at 19,750. You still got 5,000 words to go. You know? It's just, when, when a woman wakes up in the morning, opens up her closet and looks and goes, I have nothing to wear. What she really means is, I have nothing new to wear. When a guy opens up his closet and say, I have nothing to wear, what he means is I have nothing clean to wear. We mean completely different things. We handle problems differently. Have you noticed we handle problems differently? Guys, when there's a problem, we want to fix it. Let's just do something. Let's just fix it. If that doesn't work, we'll do something else. We're problem solvers by nature. Now, women are also problem solvers, but process is so much more important to them. Guys, have you noticed sometimes in discussing with your wife, they don't want solutions. They want empathy. They want conversation. In fact, the worst thing you can do is start giving her all kinds of solutions. We handle problems differently, right? We, we shop differently. Have you noticed this? <laughs> women, women do this thing called browsing. A woman can be in the mall for hours, going from, from shop to shop to shop, and you can ask her, what, do you, what, do you, what are you shopping for? Yeah, I don't know. Just browsing, just having a great time. Aren't we having a great time, honey? You know, guys don't shop like that. We're hunters. We go out, we want something, we see it, boom, we shoot it, take it back home to the cave. We shop differently, right? When it comes to sex, men and women are different. Husbands are like microwaves. Boom, they're ready to go. Women are more like crockpots. You know, it takes them a little while to warm up, right? Home decor, we're different. Home decor, I still remember as a young husband, uh, Sandy sent me to, to the store with a list of stuff to buy. I brought the bags home, put them on the kitchen table. She's going through everything. She, I, she had on the list toilet paper. I, she pulled it out. She goes, this won't work. She had the toilet paper. This will not work. You know, why is it not have like the right ply or what's wrong? So this is what she said to me. I kid you not. She said, that toilet paper will not match our towels. <laughs> And she was serious. So I had to take it home. Take it back. Get some more toilet paper. Match the color, right? Last weekend, when we took Joshua to, to Southern California, to Los Angeles, to Biola University, our first child, we're let, letting him go and releasing him, right? Mom and dad responded very differently to letting Joshua go, right? Now, I'm not going to say I didn't have a couple tears, because I did have a couple tears, and I will miss him. You know, but mama, ooh, I'm going to miss you, Josh. Oh, you know, I'm like, he won't borrow my socks anymore. That's a good thing. <laughs> Completely different. Now, why is this so important? Because when you date that person, the differences are actually attractive to you. Oh, I like it that they're different. But then five, ten years later into the marriage, the very same things that you were attracted to now tick you off. And you've got to turn that again. You've got to go back to what attracted you and the gender differences. Why? Because of that. Because gender differences actually help us complement one another. It complements in a marriage. It complements in a church. It complements at our workplace. And this is not me being funny with stereotypical things. We have some general gender differences. 
Of course, there's always some differences between each individual. But understand why God did this. He did this to complement husband and wife in the context of marriage. The story goes on in Genesis uh, 2, verse, verse 19. And, and, and here's what we said. Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the wild animals and all the birds in the sky, and he brought them to, to Adam, the man, to see what he would name them. And whatever the man called each living creature... That was its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds in the sky, and all the wild animals. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found for him. Question, what's with the animal parade? Second observation. This seems like a lot of work. I mean, if I put myself in Adam's position, have you ever like gone to a zoo and they show you all the animals and pictures? Or you've seen a biology book or, you know, zoology book of all the possible... There are a lot of animals. I mean, Adam's sitting there for hours with a legal pad, just, yeah, we're going to call that an aardvark, and we're going to call this a flamingo. It just goes on and on and on, name after name after name. What's with this? What you have to realize is that this is not for God's sake. This is for Adam's sake. The key is the last phrase. But Adam, for Adam, no suitable helper or companion or partner to compliment was found. Every single one of us, he's all gone through all the animal kingdom. Now, let's just speak the truth about the animal kingdom. A lot of us have pets, whether it's dogs or cats. I make, you know, jack jokes about cats, but whether it's dogs, cats, or birds, or fish, we like having pets because they provide some level of companionship. That's why we have them, right? Um, And there's value in that. But the point at the end is while there may be value in enjoying the animal kingdom and getting companionship for your cat or your dog, is that ultimately it's not the same, uh, the, the, the kind of companionship you can and should have with other people. And you have to be very careful, especially the elderly that get caught in a situation where their kids start going everywhere and, and their, their, their friendships and companionships with others gets minimized almost to nothing. You've got to be careful with that. God says, no, companionship and friendship is significant, and, and it's important. So the story goes on in verse 21, and here's what we read. So the Lord God calls the man to fall into a deep sleep. I don't know if he gives him some sort of anesthesia or something like that, but boom, Adam is out. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs, and then he closed up the place with flesh. And then the Lord God made woman from the rib he had taken out of the man and and brought her to the man. Of course, this is talking figuratively of what God does. It's not like guys have one less rib than women do, okay? By the way, have you heard there's been some ancient Hebrew manuscripts that have recently been found, biblical manuscripts, on these verses right here that actually explain this a little bit more? Have you guys heard of this? Let me just read it to you. It's very interesting, the conversation between Adam and and God, let me just read what these ancient Hebrew manuscripts says. It says, Adam was walking around the Garden of Eden feeling very lonely, so God asked Adam, what is wrong with you? Adam said, Lord, I don't, I don't have anyone to talk to. God said, I will give you a companion, and she will be called woman. This person will cook for you and wash and iron your clothes. She will always agree with your every decision. She will bear your children and never ask you to get up in the middle of the night to take care of them. She will not nag you, will always be the first to admit when she's wrong and you've had a disagreement. She will never have a headache and freely give you love, sex, and compassion whenever you need it. She will do whatever necessary so you can go golf whenever you want, hang out with your friends as long as you want. She will never talk to you during a football game and won't expect you to carry on conversations about small, meaningless topics. 
Adam asked God, wow, that's fantastic. What will this woman cost? God said, an arm and a leg. Adam said, what can I get for a rib? So it's just uh, something, something for you. Now, you know, the bad part is a lot of guys are going to be like, email that to me. Email, I want that. By the way, why does God put Adam to sleep? Why doesn't he let him stay there? He wants to make sure Adam knows you had nothing to do with the creation of Eve. Man and woman are created uniquely in my image. You had nothing to do with it, right? Now, this next verse is often very misunderstood, verse 23. Now, verse 23, let's put it on the screen. I don't even want you to read it yet. I just want you to look at it. Can you see that it looks different? It looks indented. Can you see that? It looks like something you would find in the book of Psalms. Why? Because verse 23 is Hebrew poetry. Verse 23, up until this point, it's narrative, and it's trying to give us information about what happened. Verse 23 is not really trying to give us information. It's trying to give us emotion. It's not trying to tell us what Adam thought. It's trying to tell us how Adam felt. And so the writer of Genesis puts it in the context of poetry. You know, roses are red, violets are blue kind of poetry. Now, for us in the English language, it doesn't sound really that interesting. But let let me just read it and give you an idea of what he's feeling and thinking. Then Adam, man, said, now this is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. Now, every Hebrew expert says and looks at this verse and says, Adam is going crazy. He is so incredibly excited when he is introduced to Eve. Because here's the scenario. God gives him some anesthesia. He goes to sleep. He wakes up up seven hours later. There he is sitting in the Garden of Eden just picking his teeth. And all of a sudden, there he sees her. (laughs) Now, I have that expression because this is Genesis 2. Before Genesis 3, when they start wearing clothes. So she is walking to him in the midst of Garden of Eden, butt naked. Boom, chicka, boom, boom. And he's like, woohoo! He starts doing cartwheels. Fireworks are going off. He starts singing Marvin Gaye songs. He's excited. That's verse 23. Now, for some of you, not all of you, do you remember the first time you saw him or saw her? It doesn't happen to everybody, but for some of you, he's like, oh my. That's what's happening here. And it sets the stage now and introduces us to the key, most foundational verses that are anywhere in the Bible on marriage. And they're verse 24 and verse 25. And here's what we read. Let's put them up on the screen. It says, this is why, or for that reason, a man will leave his father and his mother and be united to his wife. They will become one flesh Adam and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. Now, my guess is that you've heard these verses before, maybe read at a wedding or something like that. But my also guess is that you don't fully understand the implication of everything that is going on here. Theologians will look at these two verses. Oh, by the way, this is the third most quoted verse in the entire Bible. It's quoted five different times throughout the Bible. And theologians are saying that everything else in the Bible about marriage it can be summed up in these two verses right here. They either complement or add to what is already in verse 24 and 25. Now, what I'm going to do is starting for the rest of this morning and for the next following weeks, I'm going to give you the four commitments or the four foundational vows 
that are in these verses, okay? I, all of you know what a vow is, right? That's what happens at, at the end of a ceremony just before they be officially become husband and wife, you know? And uh, I heard about this grandma, actually, that was walking by the room and saw her granddaughter that was over for the weekend playing with her Barbies, and she was pretending there was a wedding. And, and so she had Ken and, and Barbie, and Ken and Barbie went to church, and Ken and Barbie walked down the aisle, and Ken and Barbie were before the pastor, and then Ken and Barbie, had, it was time for the vows, and when it was time for a for Barbie's vow, she looked at Ken and the little girl said, you know, in Barbie's voice, you now have the right to remain silent. Anything you say, Ken will use against you. You may now kiss the bride. Now, guys, honestly, sometimes that's a good thing to do. Just, but we're going to be talking about different vows, okay? Here's the first thing I want you to write down or I want you to lock it in your brain. Let's put it on the screen. It's what we're going to call the vow of priority. The vow of priority. The vow of priority says simply this. My spouse, in my case, Sandy, is the most important human relationship that I have. That's the vow of priority. No one else is more important than my wife, Sandy. Now, where do we get that from? We get that from the very first phrase that is found in these verses, where we're told, where Adam is told, leave father and mother. Now, question and some of you may have picked up on it already by now. Question, does Adam have parents? Yeah, Adam and Eve are the first two humans in the Garden of Eden. So how can he be saying this to Adam? The point is, is that this is not specific instructions to Adam. It's corporate instructions to every single couple that will live. That's the idea. And the first idea is this vow and this commitment of priority. My most important human relationship will be my spouse. And the first thing I am to do is I am to leave mom and dad. Now, why? What's going on with mom and dad? Well, just think about it logically. Mom and dad uh, are, are essentially the most important people in your life up until a point. They bring you home for the hospital, they bathe you, they clothe you, and they feed you for quite a while. Then they at least set the clothes out. And then they help you do the, the clean the room. And then they help you do your homework. And, and then they pay for things. And then they drive you places. And then they keep paying for things. And this goes on and on and on. But at some point in time, God says, what you need to do is I'm going to want you to leave that relationship in some respect. And I want you to reconnect. Let me show you what I mean. That, that Hebrew word leave is the word azab. I think it's in your study guide. We also have it up here on the screen. Azab or to leave means to loosen, to relinquish, to let go, and to commit to something or to someone new. So it's not that, 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 that I have to stop having a relationship with mom and dad. It's that now, now I'm, I'm releasing to some extent and I'm reconnecting to my spouse. Let me give you some examples of how this works. One, you leave physically. You go get your own place. You go get your own apartment. In those days, you go get your own tent. Now, I know of couples, maybe some of you were in this situation, where you got married and you didn't quite have the finances to get your own place, so you stayed with mom and dad for a little bit. Now, there's nothing sinful with that. But let me ask you a question practically. How'd that work out? Not good. It is not a healthy situation. It's better to be in a one-bedroom one studio on your own than living with mom and dad if you're married. Leave physically. Another way is leave emotionally and psychologically. When you're married and you have a problem, 
The first thing you should do is not pick up your phone and call mom. The first thing you should do is pick up a chair and talk it over with your spouse. You need to leave emotionally. You need to not have that psychological, emotional connection that you used to have with mom and dad. You have to take that, you have to loosen it a little bit, let go a little bit, and commit to this other person called your spouse. You need to leave financially. Now, every parent here, if we have the means, we would love to help our kids. I'm a grown man, and my mom and dad and Sandy's folks, they still send us money for little things, not because we need it, but because they want to. What I'm talking about here is you've got to get to a point as a young couple or a young family where you're paying your own bills. That's a healthy thing to do. You've got to learn and you've got to get there at some point in time. You've got to learn how to do this. Now, as a young couple, Sandy and I, we we went through this stage and and our relationship with our parents is is pretty healthy and and with each other, I think it's very good. But I remember as a young married couple, we, we, we realized we were violating this vow in small ways. Let me give you one example. I remember there was one time, uh, Thanksgiving and Christmas, the same thing happened. People came up to us, friends, and they said, what are you guys doing for Christmas? What are you guys doing for Thanksgiving? And each of us, on different occasions, here's how we said it. At Thanksgiving, she said, yeah, I'm, uh, we're, going, we're going back to my home in New Jersey to see mom and dad. At Christmas, here's what I said. We're going back to my home in Spain to see my mom and dad. And then we realized, wait, there's a problem there. Home is not where mom and dad is at. Home is where my spouse is at. We were, at the time, living in Chicago. We had very few friends. We didn't have a lot of family support. That was home. It's not where I grew up. It's where my wife is. And, and it just subtly, we were still holding on in ways we should. It was not healthy. It was not healthy. Now, let me just give, I, I, having talked to spouses, let me also now... Um, Say a note to to those of you who are parents and have kids that are married. Some of you unknowingly are undermining the health of your kid's marriage because you have been unwilling to do that. You have not let go. And you're not letting them let go. I just want to help. I'm just trying to give advice. I just want to make sure they don't make the same mistakes I do. I just want to throw my two cents in. And that's the problem. That's the problem. There's a very fine line between helping, assisting, and giving advice and meddling. And some of you are not letting your kid connect to their spouse in a healthy way because you keep butting in. And you have to learn to take a step back. Now, don't put words in my mouth. I am not saying you sever a relationship. I'm not saying that at all. I'm saying there's a healthy balance between letting your kid be with their spouse and, you know, they may make a few mistakes. They may have to go through some things and learn on their own. That's the point. They're trying to do this. You need to let them do this. One of the best wedding gifts some of us parents can give to our kids when they get married is to release them. Release them emotionally. Release them psychologically. Now, Here's what we've learned so far. Let's put the first graph up there. Uh, If we start talking about the most important human relationships, what have we learned so far? What should be number one? Our spouse should be number one. So let's put it up there. Spouse should be number one. Okay, now the Bible seems to give some hints as to what should be number two. What do you think number two should be? Shout it out. 
Children or family, that's correct. Your children or your family should be number two. There's a commitment level there. Now, the Bible then says step a commitment and priority number three in your human relationships. The Bible talks about this very clearly. What's number three? Huh? Come on. Really? Put it up there. It's obvious. Right? <laughs> I'm just... I'm just messing with you. Put the next slide up there. Some of you are like, really? I don't know. I was in Leviticus somewhere. This is more or less how it should look. You know, more or less. You know, um, the key is the number one. Now, here's a couple things that you need to know. Every single one of these, number two, children, number three, parents, number four, friends, co-workers, whatever. Um, everyone will compete for the number one spot. Every single one. That they will want to be number one in your life. And you got to fight that. One of the biggest issues that um, loving families have um, compete for number one is children. And we don't, we don't even do it on purpose. You, you know how this works, right? You come to a point in your life where your schedule re- revolves around your kids. You're running them to school, and then you're taking them shopping, and then, you know, you've got soccer practice, and we got piano class, and your schedule revolves around your kid. You're helping them with homework, and everything revolves around your kid because you love your kids right? Without realizing it, someone, some of us have allowed our schedule to now compete with our priority, and we've allowed our kids to become the most important individuals in our life instead of our spouses. And you have to fight that. The Bible says clearly we are to have spouse-centered marriages, not child-centered marriages. There is no doubt in my three kids' minds, no doubt who's number one to me in my life. No doubt. It's Sandy. Up front and clear. Now, does that mean I love them any less? No. Does that mean they feel loved any less? Surprisingly, no. It actually gives them a sense of foundation and security knowing that mom and dad are one and they love each other. It's very important to communicate this, okay? And some of us get caught in this trap. You got to be careful. Some of us are what we call, quote, workaholics, and we let our work become number one. Some of us, we love whatever, a hobby, a sport, or, you know, football, and we allow that to become number one. You, you've got to be incredibly important, careful. By the way, do you know what competes for many pastors as number one? Church. You guys. Because pastors, you know, we can even spiritualize it. I'm doing God's work, right? I can even make it sound good. And without realizing that some pastors can allow the church to creep up as the most important relationship in their life, and wife and family and kids come second, third, and whatever. Now, I'm giving you permission. If you ever see me doing that, you are allowed to slap me in the name of Jesus. Okay? Someone's like, I, I got an amen out of that. I think I'm going to do that. Honestly, I'm a better pastor if I'm a great husband. That's the truth. And you're a better worker if you're a great wife or a husband. Prioritize your spouse. Now, I'm going to tell you this. Every marriage, every single marriage I have seen be in trouble or sink, every single one had a problem with this vow. At least one of the two, sometimes both, but at least one of them were not prioritizing their spouse as number one. They were prioritizing something or multiple things. And it's just a matter of time. If your spouse is not number one, if they're not number one, eventually your marriage is not going to be everything you want it to be. Not just God, but you. Now, some of you have caught, I'm going to take you on just a little bit of a tangent before we wrap it up. You, you've caught the title, right? The most important human relationship. 
Let me just take you on a little bit of a tangent. I think most of you know this, but I want to make sure we get this. Let's put the next slide up there. Mark chapter 12, verse 30 and 31. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, all your mind, all your strength. This is the first commandment. In other words, I, there's somewhere in the notes where it says God is, God is technically number one. He's number one. Now, who's number two? Well, and the second or number two is like this. You shall love your neighbor or just insert spouse there as yourself. So technically, and I hope you know this, God is always number one, then my spouse is number two, okay? But in the context of human relationships, my spouse always comes first, okay? Now, how do I communicate priority? Let's wrap this up. Let's put the last slide up there, okay? Now, if you are married, you apply this to your spouse. If you are single with kids, you apply this to your kids, Okay, you just have to identify if you're not married, who's the number one in my life and how am I now going to communicate to them priority five ways. Now, I'm not going to spend a lot of time here because these vows, these commitments build on each other. Right. And I hope you'll stay with me for the next just two weeks. Right. How, how do I communicate priority? Number one, my hands, you serve them. You serve them. Are you doing things for your spouse to communicate you're important to me? I value you. Not because you have to and it's, quote, chores, but because you want to and they're valuable to you. One way you communicate priority is my hands. The other way, a second way, is my heart. You love them. I, I don't know if I have it in the study guard, but what I was thinking about here is the, the passage in Ephesians 5 where, 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 where we're told that husbands are to love their wives. Interesting. Not their children. Their wives, as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. In other words, sacrifice. True love between spouses is sacrificial. In other words, you're giving something up for them or because of them. Question, what's the latest thing you've sacrificed for your spouse? Just because. I'm giving this up because you're the most important in my life. Think about that because you should find something. You know, and you don't do it begrudgingly. No, you do it because I, I, I care about our marriage. I want us to build into it, right? Another way is through my words. You encourage them. I love you. That should come out of your mouth at least twice a day before when you leave for work in the morning, when you, when you go to sleep at night. I, I, you know, I love you. I appreciate you. You mean the world to me. Thank you. I'm sorry. You can do it. Don't worry about that. Encouraging words. You know what's weird I don't know if you're like me, but sometimes I'll think of good things about Sandy and the kids. Say I'm driving, you know, and I'll be thinking, man, I, I'm lucky. I got a good wife. You know, I, I do jokes about her on Sunday. I got a great wife, right? And I got great kids. Not perfect, but they're great kids. And I th- I'm thinking about this. And, and I'm thinking about, wow, I'm thinking about, and then I go home, but I don't say them. Did that ever happen to you every once in a while? You think good things, but you don't say them. Maybe we need to start something. If you think good things, you say them. Say it, just say it. Just tell them. I, you know, I appreciate this or that. I love you because, just tell them. Use words to encourage. Words can be incredibly destructive. We've all messed up there. But they can be encouraging too. Uh, another way we show priority is by my watch. Spend time with them. Now, I'm not saying you have to spend the most time with them than anyone else. Realistically, that's always not the case, especially if both of you are working. I mean, you get up in the morning, maybe you have 45 minutes to an hour, coffee and breakfast, and you're sort of together. And then you go to work, commute time and work, you're gone for what? Eight hours, 10 hours, 11 hours, you know? 
you get back, you have a little bit of dinner, and you got three, four hours at night. It's not technically always possible to spend the most time with your spouse. That's not what I'm talking about. But you better spend some quality time. You better spend some fun time. You can spend some chores around the house time. I mean, I'm not saying it has to be just one thing. One of the biggest mistakes some of us married couples make if we, is we stop dating. We stop going out on dates with, with, with our spouse. We do family things, and that's great. Sandy and I just had this discussion like a month ago. Because we were doing a lot of family things together, especially since Josh was going away. Let's get the family together. Let's spend time together. Go out to dinner together. And then we realized, well, how about just the two of us? Just the two of us. So we put that back on the calendar. You know, it doesn't have to be great. It just go to a movie and dinner like what you know, we used to do when it was just the two of us. Spend time together. Okay, that's very important, right? Uh, and, and the last one is my ears. Listen to them. Listen to them. When I say listen to them, I don't just mean listen to the words coming out of their mouth. I mean listen to their facial expression. Listen to their posture, their body. Because you all know this, we communicate as much non-verbally as we do verbally, sometimes even more. Now, let me just wrap up with this. And I'm going to be talking a little bit more about this in the next couple of weeks. One of the biggest issues some of us have um, with our marriage is we think of marriage as this sucker right here. We think of it as a Duraflame log. All we got to do is get together you know, we love each other. All you need is love. You know, we get married. We do the honeymoon. We come home. We turn on the Duraflame of love and just let it burn. We just sit back and enjoy it. You know, I don't know. Thank you, brother. I just, someone has a great word. I don't know a lot of marriages where this works. It doesn't. And one of the biggest problems is some of us believing all you need is love. Yeah, you, that's a good starting point. But I'm going to tell you, marriage is more like the old-fashioned way of building fires. You remember? The old-fashioned way where you'd get some twigs and you'd get some newspaper and and then you'd get some smaller sticks and then some bigger logs and you'd light it and that didn't work and you had to start again. Then when you got it going, you know, the log would fall off and you'd got to get that, you know, those big tongs and put it back and then you put some more logs on and you sit and you put, you know, and if that doesn't work, you just put some gasoline on or whatever you got to do, you got to keep it going, right? takes a lot of work to get a fire going. So does that. That's not Duraflame marriage right there. You can't just turn that on and let it burn. No, it will require a lot of work and a lot of effort. And sometimes you do it really well and sometimes not so well. Here's all I want to encourage you as I wrap up, and we're going to pick this up next week. Put a little more effort in your marriage. God intended it to be fulfilling. And some of us, we've kind of we've taken the Duraflame approach, and I just want to encourage you put put some more effort back in. Let's close in a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, first and foremost, as we um, just kind of wrap up, I want to thank you for what you've taught us this morning. But I, I especially, I just, I first of all want to pray for those that are single here. And I pray they wouldn't believe that lie that sometimes the world or, or family or whoever has told them that somehow or another they need to get married. And, and they, they may want to get married, and I hope you bring that person in their life that, that you want them to, to connect with. But I just, I just pray, Father, you would change their psyche and understanding of who you've made them to be and everything they can become, whether they're single or married. 
Father, I also want to pray right now for those who showed up to church and they didn't know what we were talking about. But the last 30 minutes have been just horrible for them because recently a marriage has exploded and and or it's falling apart right now and it was just really hard to sit through this. Father, I just I, I guess I don't know anything else to ask but that you would encourage them. Just you encourage them, Father. Maybe that's bringing hope. Maybe that's giving them more energy and perseverance to keep going on. Maybe that's bringing another friend into their life, someone maybe at this church that can just encourage them as they kind of taking journey on their own now. They got extra responsibilities at home and with the kids. I just, I pray that, that you would encourage them, Father. And Father, now I pray for our married couples. As heads are bowed and eyes are closed, what I'd like you to do is, if, if you're sitting next to your spouse, I'd like, just like you to reach over and hold their hand. If you're not sitting next to your spouse, don't do that to the person sitting next to you. That might be awkward. But if you're sitting next to your spouse, I just want you to hold their hand just for a second. And here's what I want you to do. I want you to take 10 seconds and I want you to talk to God. And I want you to confess to him that maybe not always have you applied the vow of priority. I haven't always made my spouse number one. But then I want you to tell him, God, help me do that. Help me take this home and apply it. Help me be courageous to implement it. You take 10 seconds. You talk to God right now. Do it right now. Dear Heavenly Father, remind us that the health of our country is not necessarily and automatically contingent on what's going on in the White House, but it certainly is contingent on what is going on in my house. If we can have strong marriages, you will give us strong families. And with strong families come strong churches, and strong churches come strong communities, and strong communities gives us a strong nation. That domino effect is massive, but it starts between husband and wife as they begin to apply what you've told us in your word. Father, I pray for the couples and the marriages in this room right now and in our church. Father, if we were to score ourselves from one to ten, how good, how healthy, how fulfilling is our marriage? I hope, Father, and I know I could freely admit that it's probably not a ten. Whatever it is, Father, I pray that you would help us increase that number by one or two. We can do that. We may not be able to increase it by six or seven right away, but, but we can make it better by one or two. Whether our, our, our spouse is with us here today or not, we can apply what you've taught us. Help us make our spouse number one. But as we wrap up this morning, remind us that we're talking about human relationships here. And ultimately, the most important individual in our lives is you. That's why we're here today. That's why we came to worship you. That's why we came to open your word. And we thank you for what you've done for us. And you thank, we thank you for what you've taught us. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. It's our hope that today's podcast has enriched your life and answered questions you may have had. If you'd like more information about what was said in this podcast or about Bay Hills Community Church, you can reach us on the internet at www.bayhills.net. 
Bay Hills, located in El Sobrante, California, is radically committed to reaching the unchurched in the Bay Area and to developing believers into fully devoted followers of Christ. Thanks again for listening. 